0: ContraZoom where we go back and forth about film. I'm your host Dakota Arsenault and today's episode is presented by Aesthetic Magazine. On today's show we're going to be talking about the director David Fincher. We now know him as the director of such films as Fight Club, Gone Girl and The Social Network but he actually got to start directing music videos for the likes of Madonna, Michael Jackson, Aerosmith, The Rolling Stones, George Michael, Rick Springfield, Paul Abdul, Billy Idol and much more. He first directed a concert movie for Rick Springfield back in 1983 that we won't be discussing on the show, but it's out there for any Fincher completists. Instead, this episode we're going to rank the 10 released full-length films Fincher has directed since 1992's Alien 3, much in the same way we ranked all of Christopher Nolan's films leading up to Tenet back on episode 115 that you can find in the show notes. David Fincher's latest movie, Mank, about the writing of Citizen Kane, is now available to watch on Netflix we talked about on next week in our episode of Make Remake with guests Sam Blakely and Hugh Dempsey from Please Watch This. Joining me today, though, is Joe Aragon, host of House of Cinema, an excellent movie podcast that always ends in some really fun trivia that I love to play along with while listening. Joe, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing great. I'm very excited. We're talking about David Fincher, probably one of the most exciting directors in the last 20 years. A lot of diversity in this filmography. Uh, I'm, I'm really ready to rank these top 10 movies. Awesome. Now,
0: I really want to know, what was your introduction to Fincher? What was like the first one you saw and your reception to it?
1: I think the very first Fincher movie I saw, I have to admit, probably Fight Club. Um, I think I saw Fight Club late in high school. Changed my life like it did to every other preteen male. And after that, it kind of took off. I jumped into Seven. And then everything that else that came out, I kind of caught because I recognized Fincher's name. Admittedly, didn't really watch his older stuff i didn't check out alien 3 until i was older um but i think fight club is probably my first introduction to fincher what about you
0: that would be the same for me though it was was a little bit later than you it was probably uh first year of college which would have been 2007 for me uh fell in love with it it was always one of those movies i was like oh yeah i I know that one and like of course right after i watched it i I bought the iconic poster the soap poster and had that up on my dorm room, room wall yes yes and uh, and, I, and I watched a couple of them, but like I wasn't really like oh this even though I knew who directors were because I was in acting school, but like I, I I knew who he was, but I wasn't really like I need to seek out all of his movies. And I saw a couple, you know, saw Seven, saw Panic Room, stuff like that. And it wasn't probably until Curious Case of Benjamin Button that I was actually like going out into the theater and seeing his works. Mostly oh, I think okay. because his stuff before then was was probably far too adult for me. Like, I was born in 1989. There was no way I was watching, you know, Seven or, or Fight Club when they were coming out. That was just way too young for that. Uh, yes, and, and yeah. And movies kind of moved along with that as well, where they were very adult.
1: Yeah, we're in the same boat. I was born in 1990, so Fight Club I didn't catch until I think I was a junior in high school when I was allowed to sort of watch it. Mm-hmm. Um, but like you, didn't really get into it until maybe after Curious Case. Uh, maybe with Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, I started to pay attention to Fincher a little bit more
0: interesting now did you have any blind spots going into this project
1: Uh, I will admit I did have to revisit the game I had seen it once maybe six years ago and when you you know it approached me to do this project I thought okay I know at least seven of his works very very well I had to revisit the game Alien 3 and Panic Room because those are the ones I didn't really find myself watching or revisiting at all um, specifically the game and specifically Alien 3. Now, we'll get into it a lot, I'm sure, when we start talking about our rankings, but those were my two biggest blind spots going into this list.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I had not seen either Alien 3 or the game. The game was one that I always want to watch, and uh, and we'll talk about it a bit more with Alien 3, but um, I had only started watching the franchise recently. I saw Prometheus when it first came out, I think because it was nominated for an Oscar, and I tried to watch all the Oscar-nominated movies. But that was my first one. And then I only saw Alien two years ago. And then I watched Aliens earlier this year. And so I'm finally like, oh, yeah, I can watch these movies. No problem. <laughs> Alien 3, I would probably call the least scary of the group. Uh, anyways, yes, yeah.
1: Definitely the 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 black sheep in the series for sure. But I'm sure we'll talk a lot about that soon.
0: Yeah, yeah. So so those were my two blind spots. The, the game was one i had always wanted to catch up with. But I, I heard... Always mix things about it, so I, it was never high up on my of my list to go into. Now we aren't going to really talk about TV, but along with being you know the the brainchild he of two TV shows, he uh, he also directed two episodes of House of Cards and Seven from Mine Hunter. Uh, have mm-hmm. you watched mm-hmm. either of them?
1: Uh, House of Cards, I'd caught a little bit uh, an episode here and there, but I never really got into it. Mindhunter, though, I will say, and I emailed you this earlier before we started this project, is probably my favorite Fincher project. I mean, I love a lot of his films, some of them in my top personal 20 of all time, but Mindhunter, I think, is the best product Netflix has really released, and Fincher's episodes are fantastic. Um, I really think he's he's honed that skill to to make a really scary thriller and put it in a, a Netflix series it's just it's out of this world good I'm, I'm really really a big fan of Mindhunter right, have you watched it are you a fan
0: well i first say with, with House of Cards I, I think I watched like the first three seasons of it and then I, I started the fourth and it was just it progressively got less interesting as the seasons gone on and like,
1: yeah I've heard that
0: now it's you know no one talks about House of Cards due to uh, Kevin yeah. Spacey's involvement in it. So it's kind of fallen off completely where it's almost like Game of Thrones level. We're like, we just don't talk about the show anymore.
1: <laughs> yeah, we kind of just move on, you know? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, and so Mindhunter, I had never seen. It was one I always wanted to watch. My, my wife isn't really into that sort of stuff. So usually when I'm at home, we try, I try to watch stuff that she's also interested in. So it's just one of those things where it's like, oh yeah, one day I'll get around to it. And, and obviously once I'd caught up with all the, I rewatched all 10 of the movies that we needed to for this. Uh, I, I decided, you know, I was like, oh, I got I got some time. So I watched the first two episodes, which he directed, and, and I'm loving it. This is, this is clearly right up my alley and, and definitely oh, yeah. probably be one of my favorite Netflix shows or, or TV shows in general.
1: Yeah, if you're a fan of Gone Girl or Seven or Golden Dragon Tattoo, Zodiac, I mean, a lot of the same movies that he's done, Mindhunter is just kind of like that, but put into a 10-episode Netflix series. You know, it's kind of sad that, it's kind of on an indefinite hold at this point. Whether or not he'll revisit it is kind of is up in the air at this point. Uh, so a lot of my Hunter fans are kind of disappointed, but we'll see. Maybe in three years he'll come back to it.
0: Yeah, I, I, you know, with with someone like Fincher, I can definitely see of him just taking the time off he needs to do another movie or whatever, and then come back with like a really solid idea for another season. And you know, I. Based on the comments I've been seeing from Netflix, I don't think they're going to turn him away, especially now since they've, you know, this is two TV shows he's done with them and now another movie. If he happens to win them Best Picture this year, which, based on the way it's looking, could very well be the case, I think think Fincher's got sort of a blank check with Netflix.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. I think Netflix has done a really good job getting... Really high exposure directors and kind of give them the free reigns to do what they want. Fincher and Soderbergh and Caron, and there's I'm sure other ones I can't even think of right now. They are, have been done a really good job to recruit big directors and say, hey, go ham, do what you want. And and they've really brought some great stuff to Netflix. So hopefully he, he comes back for Mindhunter.
0: So with that, underway we're gonna get into our countdown at the very end of the show we're also going to give out our awards uh for our our best films and performances and the like but uh let's uh let's get this started what's our number 10 movie i guess i should also explain the way this works is we both uh ranked and rated these movies and then me using a super complex formula basically averaging them out uh (laughs) we spit out this top 10 list and so we're just gonna go back and forth talking about these movies so so hit us up with the number 10
1: movie well, coming in at number 10, we have Alien 3. Alien on board. Yes. <sighs> There's definitely something in here with us. We have no weapons of any kind. <laughs> Released in 1992, this is David Fincher's very first film. I'll give you a quick synopsis from IMDb. After her last encounter, Ellen Ripley crash lands on a maximum security prison. When a series of strange and deadly events start to occur, Ripley realizes that she had brought an unwelcomed visitor. Now, it's almost unfair to criticize Fincher for the Alien 3 fiasco. There's a lot of uh, backstory about production issues and uh, a lot of the things that Fincher wanted to be done were kind of ixnayed by the production companies. Uh, a lot of corporate tr- uh, dis- uh, decisions were made that Fincher didn't agree with. And plus, how do you really follow up Alien 1 and Aliens, uh, two iconic horror movies of the 70s and 80s? Alien 3 is not great. Um, rewatching it, I, I kind of forgot there's like this whole religious undertone to it, Um You know, there's some good performances. There are some very odd decisions. I think it's safe to say I can kind of spoil the movie since it's been 30 years since it's come out. But uh, Ellen Ripley dies at the end, which is something I completely forgot that happens. And it's really a a strange decision to kill off your most iconic hero in a a franchise. Uh, Whether or not that was a good decision is, is up for debate. But the movie itself is just, it takes away from the the first and second one which were really scary which were really fun and kind of just like feels like a a mess put into a movie how did you feel about watching alien 3 and how do you think it stacks up to alien 1 and 2
0: this is this is a tough one because like obviously this movie is clearly not as good as the other ones and we now know that fincher has basically disowned this and doesn't consider it his film and i think he even tried to like get his name removed from it which is interesting (laughs) But, like, there are quite a few elements of, like, you can see where his greatness would grow and evolve from. There, There's, you know, it's a very nihilistic movie, and it's sort of outlook of the world, and, and that's really on display, and that's something where we kind of get a lot later on. Uh, the CGI is kind of pretty wonky at times, and I think CGI has been a huge aspect of Fincher's career. He uses it so much, but in a way that's pretty unique to him where you you know it's always there, but it doesn't look fake. It just kind of looks dreamy at times. There's always a bit of softness to the the lens when he's using his CGI. But here it's, you know, so much more over, it looks like almost like bad matte paintings sort of thing. So it's tough. Like there, anytime I want to be like, and this didn't work, but on the other hand, this kind of worked. It's it's such a tough movie to really evaluate and critique, and knowing how much drama and fighting was going on behind the scenes, it, it's I don't know. Do you do you find it as tough as I am to like really like be like it's a terrible movie? This movie
1: sucks. Yeah, I no, I totally agree with you. I'm on the same page for sure. It definitely doesn't have the depth that a lot of the other films he on his filmography. I mean, we're just talking it's an alien three movie with aliens attacking a prison and they're trying to escape and survive there's no real depth to it there's not this underlying message that he's trying to present there's no really big thematic elements or messages he's also trying to uh present to an audience it's just kind of your run-of-the-mill action movie that it's just not as good as its predecessor um so yeah, like you, I find it hard to really put a lot of value in saying, well, it's his worst movie. Okay, sure, but it also doesn't really define him as a director. Like you said, he really evolves from this point. I mean, he has he has some elements in this movie that we see in other films, but he's just grown a lot from this. And so, I, like you, I can't really put too much weight on it.
0: There's some stuff that I think are like there's some stuff in this movie that really is excellent. Specifically the autopsy scene which I feel like is a real precursor to Seven and the way they sort of yes, yes. evaluate bodies in this very clinical, sterile involvement where there's also gore, but it feels so separated. And so it's very interesting. You, you watch that scene and, you know, it's two masterful performances between um, Sigourney Weaver and Charles Dance. And, and you just sort of have to like marvel at this is a blueprint that Fincher would follow in several of his movies, obviously most notably Seven, but it happens time and time again in, the, in this sort of aspect. And, like, I think it's really interesting. You know, I mentioned Charles Dance, who's also going to be in Mank. I really liked his performance. It's a really strong performance. You know, you don't really understand him. You, you, right from the get-go, you're like, I don't really trust this guy. And then he kind of gets killed off halfway through the movie. And you're like, oh, man, yeah. the guy was a good guy the whole time. He just kind of, you know, stuck on a prison and never been around women for, like, 30 years.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, his death halfway through the film caught me off guard because, like you mentioned, we meet him. We seem like he's a good guy with good intentions who kind of got mixed up in the wrong things and ended up at this maximum security prison. And then they just cut him off in the middle of the movie. But his performance is pretty fantastic. and I love that you brought up the autopsy scene because a lot of Fincher's film, the tension or the gore is always something to do with the body. You know, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, which we'll talk about later, There's a lot of brutality in, in terms of the body. Uh, Seven, obviously a lot of gore with the body. Although this particular scene in this movie isn't gory, but it is very intense. And we're, we're finding out if Sigourney Weaver has a xenomorph in her stomach. And if she does, we know what happens. So it's, it's a very intense moment and a very intense scene that he just kind of evolves from that scene and gets better and better with this filmography.
0: Mm -hmm. I think at the end of the day, the biggest issue with this movie is pacing because like I was reading about how it seemed like every day, you know, new scenes were being written or removed and they didn't really know what exactly the overall plot was going to be and all this sort of stuff. I think that really hindered when they finally got to the editing room because it was 50 different movies being shot and everyone trying to have their own way with it. And, I know Fincher fought really hard in the editing suite and was actually fired at that point. And so that's why he doesn't consider it his film. But at the end of the day, that's the issue. You know, there, there are some really interesting things. It It's basically a generic action movie, but at times it's a very elevated generic action movie, which there's nothing wrong with. And yes, yes. that's just sort of where the, the, the issues sort of stem from.
1: Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with
0: that. Yeah, um, I think the last thing I, I kind of want to talk about is basically it seems like every shot of the alien, he's just absolutely coated in what looks like
1: lube. Like, it's
0: pretty <laughs> disgusting. This is true. <laughs> this is true.
1: They're trying to make him like a very menacing, and he, all right, we know the xenomorph is very menacing, but they kind of overdo it in Alien 3, with like, the lube saliva look. where like, we get it, he's drooling, but they really overdo it in this movie.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's like way too much KY jelly on this thing. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right, uh, so we're going to move on. We're going to talk about the number nine movie, which is Panic Room. What? Is this room smaller than it should
1: be? You're the first person to notice. No one from our office had the slightest idea. It's called a panic room.
0: What? A safe room. Castle keep in medieval times. Ford concrete walls. Buried phone line not connected to the house's main line. They have your own ventilation system, and a bank of surveillance monitors that covers nearly every corner of the house.
1: What's to keep someone from prying open the door?
0: Steel. Very
1: thick steel. My room.
0: Definitely my room. came out in 2002. A divorced woman and her diabetic daughter takes refuge in their newly purchased house's safe room when three men break in, searching for a missing fortune. This, is, uh, this is movie is also a little bit tough to sort of categorize in Fincher's career. It's probably the most generic out of all of his movies. It's, it's still pretty fun. There's a lot of interesting stuff going on, but there's almost no real message or meaning behind it. It's a pretty straightforward breaking and entering film. Basically, I sort of look at this as Home Alone if directed by David Fincher. <laughs> Do you sort of feel that there's any sort of way to elevate this movie or is it sort of just what it is and just your typical drama crime thriller?
1: I mean, you took the words out of my mouth and out of my brain because when I watched this movie, I think for the very first time I saw this movie very late, probably my late 20s, mid 20s. And I had already seen Seven and Zodiac and Girl Dragon Tattoo. So when I went to watch this, I kind of had this assumption that I was in for a thriller with maybe a twist or some elevated theme that's going to go happen. But no, it's, like you said, a very generic, just breaking, entering thriller movie. Um, it's a, I like to just say, it's like a TV movie where you turn on TV and it plays for however long the movie is and it's over. There's something really too intense about it. There's no big twist. There's no big thematic message. It's just Jodie Foster and very young Kristen Stewart staying alive in a panic room. And that's basically it. Um, you know, the performances themselves aren't mind blowing. Jodie Foster's fine. I think she's a good mother defending her daughter. Uh, Kristen Stewart is very young in this movie. So she's not giving this performance of a lifetime either, but uh, Forrest Whitaker is the, the, the good intention villain in this movie. But you know, like you said, there's just nothing really special about panic room. That makes me want to watch it over any other Fincher movie.
0: Yeah, I I totally agree. Like, I remember liking it, and I went back and I rewatched it for this, and I was just like, it's okay. Like, I'm not gonna complain about it because, you know, you could probably take this same premise and offer it to any number of of directors working in this time of, you know, the the early 2000s to the mid 2000s, and it probably would have been a lot worse film, but at the end of the day, it isn't elevated. Content. Like, I would look at Alien 3, where there's at least some really interesting concepts going on in that movie, even if it failed. Whereas this one, there just wasn't really a ton going on. Like, I look at someone maybe like Dwight Yoakum, who could have had a really interesting part, and like, he sort of gets some really juicy moments towards the end as one of the bad guys, Raul. But for the most part, like, he he's silent through all of it. And I don't really find his revelation of just being this really sadistic bad guy convincing enough that I, I latch on to it or am I truly terrified of him? That, that sort of thing.
1: Yeah. I think the most interesting part of the panic room is Jared Leto's cornrows, And other than that, <laughs> there's not much else going on in this movie because you know, Jared Leto, who has, is an Oscar winner now you know if you go back and you see panic room starring jodie foster and jared leto you really like whoa this is, must be a movie and you go back and jared leto is you know this kind of uneducated thief in cornrows uh then he gets knocked off in the middle of the film um we kind of see a trend with alien 3 and panic room killing off two characters that were kind of interesting but other than that this film just really doesn't really grabbed my attention to the point where I'm like, I want to revisit this movie more and more and more.
0: I think the last thing I would say about this is for a movie that was released in 2002, the CGI was pretty seamless with this. The way that the camera would kind of like uh, float through the house, go through the different floors, which is a bit of a, a Fincher staple by this point. But Considering the time, it looks really good. Like I you can't even notice it because the the camera would basically go down a flight of stairs in between the floors and then the scene would continue. So it's not noticeable in any way. Did you did you find that it's aged well at this point?
1: You know, in my notes I wrote down the one thing that keeps this movie from being number ten is that the cinematography and the camera movement is really, really good. There you go. Because you like you said, the transitions from different levels of the house because it's one of those weird new york houses New york it might be or chicago or some big city like condo house where there's like four floors or three floors um and the transitions from floor one to floor two to the basement to the panic room you know the cameras sometimes go inside the walls and you follow gas going through tubes uh it's done really really well and that really kind of saves the movie for me
0: there we go i feel like we're, we're absolutely on the same page so far <laughs>
1: So far, I'm def- we're definitely going to get in some disagreement very soon.
0: All right, well, what do we have next?
1: At number eight, we have 1997's The Game.
0: Conrad. Everything all right? October 12th. Nikki's birthday. This is for you. Consumer Recreation Services. Call that number. Why? They make your life fun. What are you selling?
1: It's a game. A game specifically tailored for each participant let me give you a quick synopsis of the game because I really do feel that the game is the one Fincher film that people don't recognize the most after a wealthy banker is given an opportunity to participate in a mysterious game his life is turned upside down when he becomes unable to distinguish between the game and reality sounds like a really cool plot but the movie itself is—it feels like they're overcomplicating something that, and trying to deliver this message, this really deep and profound message about a very wealthy banker, uh, Michael Douglas, and him trying to find kind of like the meaning of life and understand the simplicities of life, rather than be this uptight and snobby person that he is. How do you feel about the game, and and why do you think it works or it doesn't work?
0: You know it. It sort of feels like if you take gordon gecko and and place him in this situation that's probably why michael douglas was cast and and we'll kind of get into this a little bit more but i really feel like Fincher loves his stunt castings in the sense of getting someone to either play to their recognitions or uh, against type a little bit and so we have this you know very elevated concept and for the most part, I was really with it and, and really liking the scenario where you're not really sure what exactly is going on. Is it all a game? Is it real? Is he actually being robbed from? Who can he trust? Is his brother really on his side? Is his brother gone crazy? All this sort of stuff where you're like, man, I can't wait to see how all this wraps up. And then it wraps up and you're like, wow, I don't believe this ending at all. It seems completely rushed and forced and the message here is you just need to threaten a rich guy with his life and every in all of his money and suddenly he becomes a, a good guy i like i don't even know what his epiphany moment is like it's it's such a weird thing where like even if they that was supposed to be you know his sort of like a uh, scrooge epiphany moment it doesn't feel earned in the slightest it's just like oh my god you guys almost killed me wasn't that hilarious and that's the end <laughs>
1: no i agree with you completely on that it does feel like they're trying to force this profound message that you should appreciate life more but it's forced in a really particularly bad way it's executed awkwardly i mean at the end he shoots his brother but then realizes it he's not well he shoots his brother that jumps off a roof which ends up being all part of the plan and you know it makes him appreciate life but as a audience member it's, it's like is this what I was supposed to feel this whole movie? Like I, I, it's a very awkward and uncomfortable feeling and it's not the best. I feel like the game is also paced kind of poorly. There are a lot of times in the film where I'm like, it's just dragging and dragging. And then the last 30 minutes is it's firing on all cylinders. And then it kind of ends with this flat note where you're really just questioning, like, is this really the ending of the movie? And it is the ending of the movie. So Uh, We're kind of on the same page in the game as well. It feels like we're both just kind of let down by what it's trying to do.
0: Yeah, and I think there are some like genuinely, I don't want to say scary, but definitely like very heightened moments in this film. I I think of uh, one when, Early on when uh, when he's first learns he's playing and he's in an ambulance and they pull up to the hospital and uh, him and this woman that he's encountered played by Deborah Kara Unger who plays this woman, Christine, and they get out and they're about to go in the hospital and then the lights shut off everywhere, including all the car lights and then everyone scatters and you're just like, whoa, what is going on here? I don't really understand how much reality am I really witnessing? And then we kind of get it um, again later on when he goes back home and his house was broken into and it's just utterly destroyed. And there's this like uh, neon spray paint all over his house. And you're not sure if he's alone or not because he's on the phone and the, uh, he's apparently calling the police or something like that. And they're like, are you sure everyone has left the house yet? And you're just like, Oh, that's a good little twist there where like I actually kind of felt a little bit on the edge of my seat and, and you get got all these really interesting high concept moments and then it just sort of like falls flat a little bit.
1: Yeah, yeah, you know what? The game feels like a glorified version or a more serious version of Total Recall. Mm. But I enjoy Total Recall a lot more because it's a science fiction film, and we know from the beginning what it's supposed to be. When the game, it's kind of similar because you're supposed to question reality, what's real and what's not. But I just, I just feel like it doesn't, it's not executed well enough for me to care.
0: Yeah. And then the last thing I kind of want to mention is. As he's trying to figure everything out, he's figured out where the headquarters of all this stuff is going on, and he takes a hostage. I think it's like a security guard or something like that, and he goes into this room, and it's a cafeteria, and he's looking around, and it's literally everyone that he's encountered in the last like week or two, however long this has been going on, whether it's someone as big as the woman that's played the female interest in in this whole movie, or the, the, the security guard, or a bellhop, or a cab driver, or whatever, like every small person that he's interacted with is all there it's like one of those really crazy revelations but then you know by the end of it like we were talking about it it just sort of all sort of falls flat on its head where you know one of them is like ah i thought you were really gonna shoot me or i would have had to push you off the the building <laughs> or whatever it is and it just it just really doesn't work in the end
1: yeah yeah i you know what the one thing i really like about this movie I do like Michael Douglas Douglas in it. And I do like his transition and his evolution from being the snobby wealthy man to the, you know, at the very end. He's gun wielding, not afraid to take hostages. You know, ready to kill somebody to figure out what's happening. I do like that transition. I just feel like, like we both said before, at the end it does fall a little bit flat. And it, you know, when you realize it's all fake, it you know, was the transition even authentic or not is it comes to question. So. Yeah, there are things I like about it I feel like it has a lot of promise Or had a lot of promise um, But ultimately it just really doesn't live up To a lot of the other thrillers On his filmography
0: mm-hmm. Alright so we're going to move on now Coming in at number 7 Is The Curious Case of Benjamin Button From 2008 My name is Benjamin Button And I was born under unusual circumstances While everybody else was aging
1: I was getting younger, all alone.
0: Which tells the story of Benjamin Button, a man who starts aging backwards with consequences. Now, this is actually a movie that you have much higher than I do, so I'm definitely going to be interested to sort of see where you land. I I like that it sort of stands out in Fincher's filmography as being so different than everything else. It's probably the only lighthearted film he has if if you were to say such a thing uh even something like social network which isn't like a you know a a thriller or or horrorish movie like the rest of it it still has some real dark undertones whereas this is is mostly a pretty life-affirming positive movie what about this really stands out as being so positive for you
1: like you said this is definitely out of left field for a fincher fan if you are becoming a fincher fan you watch the game in Panic Room in seven, and then you turn on Curious Case of Benjamin Button, you'll definitely be caught off guard because like you said, this is as lighthearted as it gets. You know, I get people's disdain or maybe dislike for the Curious Case of Benjamin Button. It's a longer movie, but hey, most of Fincher's movies are pretty long. The one thing I really, really like about the Curious Case of Benjamin Button is definitely the cast. I really do believe that this is probably Fincher's best supporting cast in all of his films i mean he has a lot of great actors in all of his films but this particular supporting cast i'm a big fan of obviously we have brad pitt and kate blanchett as the two leads tilda swinton's in this movie taraji p henson is in this movie uh a ali pre two oscars is in this movie uh jared harris who was recently in chernobyl if anybody caught that he's in this film there's a really really great cast and every character I just really love i think every character not only is important to the film but they all represent something different for me as a person and that's why i i really like this movie maybe i'm just a sucker for movies that make me feel good but i i really do enjoy watching this movie from beginning to end i, I don't really think there's a point where i'm not enjoying it but i do understand some people don't like it so i want to hear from you what are you not a fan of?
0: You know, I, I'm I'm gonna play a little bit of devil's advocate because I do I do think you're you're on the money with a lot of it. I think especially the supporting cast is really brilliant. Where I think maybe myself and others sort of take issue with it is at times it could feel a little bit Forrest Gump like, and to some people that might be a huge positive. But I uh, I recently rewatched Forrest Gump for the first time in a very long time, and to me it just did not hold up. You know. You got all these sort of right place, right time in the middle of history moments that Benjamin Button also sort of has. And then I think another sort of trope it has is what I would sort of call a a titanicness where you've got like this old lady on her deathbed retelling her life story, which just really didn't work for me. So I think those two elements as a whole is what maybe holds me off on loving it. I do think the the sentimentality works for it. I, I You know, it's it's very sickly sweet at certain points, and I know that sort of turns a few people off, but for me, I kind of got on board and, and got a little emotional at certain times. Brad Pitt's performance especially was excellent, but there's just sometimes a little bit too much of everything going on.
1: Yeah, and I can understand that. I completely do understand that. I do agree the Titanic... Uh, uh, comparison of the old lady telling the story i don't know if that was exactly needed for this movie maybe to help progress this plot a little bit more efficiently that's why they chose it but maybe they could have done the movie without that um you know the forrest gump aspect as well I totally get that as well you know sometimes there's that that feeling where it's kind of going through history and it's all very positive um you know there's just some scenes in this film that i really really love and that have really just kind of stuck with me Um, I really enjoy the scene where we learn how Kate Blanchett's character breaks her leg and it's just Brad Pitt narrating this really, what I think is a beautiful scene of how every little thing we do kind of leads to this moment. You know, the guy tying his shoe and the person who forgets to set the alarm and, um, the guy who's getting like a coffee at the coffee shop, how every little moment leads up to a big moment because there's a point in everybody's life, whether it be something really small really major, you know, if you get in a car accident and you think to yourself, gosh, if I would have just like put my jacket on at my door for five more seconds, I wouldn't have been in that car accident. And I feel like there are moments in this movie where I'm watching it and it's just, it really summarizes what life could be like sometimes. And so I I admit I'm a sucker for things like that. And I, and I totally get that some people aren't, and I do see um, how some people just are kind of pushed or pushed away from this movie. But I do admit I have a a little bit too much personal bias into it.
0: That's that's totally fair. I think this movie walked so the MCU universe could run in the sense of de-aging actors or aging yes, them up. Yes, yes like yeah. I, I i think the the de-aging and aging of brad pitt works wonderful in this movie we're talking about in panic room the way the cgi stands out and still holds up and it absolutely does for this like it's a little weird and creepy seeing super old brad pitt but i think his performance really sells it you know they looks like a wrinkled old peanut basically
1: <laughs> exactly
0: but you know we, we look at in the marvel world what they did with robert downey jr making him look like him in the Brat Pack movies, or Kurt Russell bringing him back to his heyday of the yep. '80s, and and this technology works because I think we saw it with this, and, and and how well they were able to really do it, and they just were able to completely refine it going forward.
1: Well, you, you said something earlier in the episode that I really love, and that's Fincher's use of CGI is is really subtle but really powerful. Still, um, it works really well in Panic Room, even in Alien Three. You know, it's wonky at points, but still pretty good. This is another example where the CGI is, is really good. You know, sure, we're not seeing these huge explosions and alien invasions, but we're seeing a de-aging of a person. It's done very, very well. And I think we'll talk about more CGI probably later in this episode as well.
0: All right, so what do we have up next?
1: Coming in at number six, we have the girl with the dragon tattoo. I need your help. You come and stay on the island. A way of avoiding all those people that you might want to avoid right now. You will be investigating thieves, misers, bullies, the most detestable collection of people that you will ever meet, my family. This is Harriet. Someone in the family murdered Harriet, and for the past 40 years has been trying to drive me insane. Journalist Mikhail Blomkis is aided in his search for a woman who has been missing for 40 years by Lisbeth Salander, a young computer hacker. This is famously an adaptation of the Stieg Larson novel and uh, I believe Trilogy or maybe even bigger now. But this is a movie that I think we differed, differed upon as well. I really enjoy this movie. I do think that the last 25 minutes, completely unnecessary. If you cut that movie, that last 20 minutes out, I really think this is an even better movie than I already like it. But, you know, <laughs> Fincher has been known for his... Uh, you know, gory, his brutality sometimes in his movies. I mean, there are some really intense moments and in obviously Seven and, and Zodiac and Fight Club gets kind of gory at points as well. But I think Girl the Dragon Tattoo really kind of takes the cake in terms of just pure brutality. And it's hard to watch at points because it's so in your face, just really, really, really gruesome stuff. The actual plot, I think is a lot of fun. I think it's a really good thriller. Uh, and the characters of Lisbeth Salander, uh, played by Rooney Mara, I think she's really, really fantastic this movie. How do you feel about uh, Golden Dragon Tattoo? You
0: know, this is... I, I feel like this is a bit of a reoccurring theme that we've, we've highlighted so far. In the movies that sort of don't work the best in David Fincher's filmography, it always sort of comes down to pacing issues and editing and things like that. And, you know... I, I sort of agree with you in you know the last twenty thirty minutes are a little superfluous. I still really liked it, and, mm-hmm. it, and it makes me really sad that we never got their their follow up to this, where yes, they eventually did yeah. do uh, did do one with um what's her name from The Crown, Claire Foy from Claire The Crown. Floyd, yeah, and I never ended up seeing it, and I know Fincher is credited as a producer. I don't really know if he had any real involvement with it, other than the fact that he sort of helped adapt it to the American audiences, but like. Just seeing that, the fact that he has that ability to do this really tight, high-paced, thriller-ish stuff that's completely different than, you know, the rest of the movie was really interesting and fascinating and and could have been like if it was a TV show it would sort of be its own episode where it's like Elizabeth goes out and does an adventure on her own sort of thing. Uh, But overall, yeah, this is is a movie where I think it's got some really high highs and some, I don't want to say low lows, but just middling lows. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Really interesting stuff. And, And I almost look at Elizabeth's, salander's portrayal as very similar to mark zuckerberg in the social network the only difference being uh elizabeth is the ethical hacker where mark is the chaotic (laughs) hacker but they they share a lot of character similarities in the way they view people how necessary they are to their own ends And and just a whole bunch of different stuff and their ability to use their intelligence and skills to their advantage, whether that's for good or for evil. And sometimes they cross the same line where it's both at the same time.
1: No, I I think that's a really good analysis of it. I think your point that there's a lot of high highs. There's a lot of moments in this movie where I'm just I'm all in. I love it. Give me more of it. And then the pacing kind of holds it back because there are some lows to it where – It kind of drags, you know, the ending, like you said, is fun, but really superfluous. At that point, last 20 minutes of the movie, the crime is solved. We we know who the killer is. We find out the girl who is missing, well, she's not actually missing, and Christopher Plummer meets his uh, granddaughter. Great. But then we have an extra 25 minutes of her hacking and moving money around and kind of giving Daniel Craig's character some vengeance on the person who's wronged him. You know, It, is that it actually ends up being, he, sorry to
0: interrupt you, it actually sort of just ends up being character plot that we don't get from Lisbeth earlier on. So we get all of her actual character attributes at the end of the movie.
1: Oh, totally. And, and like you said, this is something that maybe could have started off a second film. Like, do you start a second movie, the sequel to this film, with this last 20 minutes of the first movie? Possibly, but like you said, we never really got that from Fincher, and we did get a you know, a spiritual sequel with uh, Claire Foy. And I believe it was uh, Fede Alvarez who who did the Evil Dead remake. Uh, I think he was the one on the helm of that movie, which I also never saw, uh, but I heard not the greatest things, um, which is sad because I know that the trilogy itself is very uh, renowned and people love the, the books. So who knows if we'll ever revisit Elizabeth Salander again in the future. But, you know, for a filmography Fincher is really known for his thrillers, his psychological thrillers. I, I really do recommend this one. I don't say skip it. I think it's one that's you know it's better than Panic Room and better than the game, in my personal opinion. Um, I think I enjoy it more than Zodiac, but uh, we're definitely going to be talking about that in just a second.
0: Oh, that that sort of breaks my heart to hear. Um,
1: <laughs> I. I would probably
0: classify this movie as having the most meaning behind it. I I think something I sort of struggled with while rewatching all of Fincher's movies was I noticed a bit of a trend that, There isn't a lot of deeper meaning to his movies. They're sort of these very singular characters, very singular incidents that don't really have a lot to say about the world that we live in. Some of the movies do. I would say, you know, obviously Social Network and and Fight Club, but the rest of them don't really do. They're they're just such contained stories about very specific people and events. And obviously Dragon Tattoo has a lot to say about... Feminism and also the way we sort of view this the rich, the elite, and how they view us. But also some some interesting stuff where I feel like Sweden never really sort of grappled with its history in supporting Nazi Germany, yeah. and this movie yeah. like really kind of bangs it out of the park as far as, you know, what was their dark history? Their dark history was they were very supportive of Nazi Germany. They sent them a lot of money. They helped build a lot of things that was going on during World War II, and, and you know, Germany fully has owned up to their past and, and has really recognized the way that the world views them. And I really don't think Sweden had that reckoning.
1: Yeah, that's a great point. And I think that a lot of people may just completely miss. And this movie really deals with that. You know, it it's, we learn learned that the killer is, has Nazi ties. He has evolved from being, or maybe devolved from being a Nazi, from just killing Jewish people. But he's, you know, the killer now is killing any woman. Um, but I think that's an excellent point that a lot of people are missing. And I think that's why, I tend to just like this movie more than Zodiac because there's just a lot more layers to it. And I think it's done pretty well. Yeah, I, I agree. And,
0: and so there, there's just some really cool stuff going on. I think the one part I want to highlight is when they're doing their research towards the end of the movie, when they sort of both have their aha moment, uh, it it really sort of feels something similar to to all the presidents' men, where you know, it's just people focused hard on the work and the work will solve the crime. It's not just like, oh, and we found the missing secret clue that yes, will reveal everything. It's, exactly. You know the poring over the court documents and looking over the photos and the newspaper clippings and box after box after box and and through that process they're able to piece together everything that they need to to sort of figure out what they maybe know maybe don't know but need to actually be confirmed for. But those twenty or so minutes is really riveting despite the fact that there's almost no dialogue in these moments.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's also an excellent point. See, I hey, it sounds like you're really liking Girl with the Dragon tattoo. I'm excited to hear your love for Zodiac well yes so
0: we actually have a tie for fourth place and so the first one is Zodiac from from 2007 the Zodiac killer has come to San Francisco another letter school children make nice targets he gave himself a name Greek Morse code, astrological signs. This guy's used them all.
1: I like killing people because man is the most dangerous animal of all.
0: In the late 1960s, early 70s, a San Francisco cartoonist becomes an amateur detective obsessed with tracking down the Zodiac Killer, an unidentified individual who terrorizes Northern California with a killing spree. Now, we're going to talk about my favorite Fincher movie later, and I'm going to reveal which one it is. But I actually think probably as far as Fincher's talent goes, this is probably his best movie, in my opinion. I think he's just so assured with his direction and is able to weave so many different plots back and forth with different storylines, different characters, spend a long period of time, something I, I usually have issue with movies Where they, you know, and five years later we jump forward. It just really doesn't work because it sort of sucks out all the energy and you're trying to fit too much information in too short of a period of time. But this, it really works because I feel like when they jump, you know, for a year, two years, six months, whatever it is, we actually see. Everything we need to know about the time jump we see on the characters' faces, whether it's, you know, Robert Downey Jr. losing his sanity, Jake Gyllenhaal, you know, maturing, and then uh, dematuring, I guess. But there's so much going on in this and the little things that it sort of boggles my mind that this isn't at the top for you. And, and, you know, you have some explaining to do.
1: So I will have to admit, one of the biggest reasons I, I find myself not liking or not revisiting Zodiac. It's a very long movie. I will say that right now. It's almost a three-hour movie. This might be Fincher's like longest movie, I believe, on his filmography. But, you know, length is not always a testament to why movies not great. Personally, I think what bothers me about this movie is that we really don't get a satisfying conclusion. And that's just because the Zodiac Killer was never caught in real life. So, Fincher literally cannot give us a resolution that's really satisfying. Again, maybe I'm a, I'm a sucker for movies that give me a, not necessarily a happy ending, but an ending. But in this movie, it really just ends with screen goes black and this, you know, X and X person was interrogated and testified and he, you know, DNA was never found for him. And so you're just kind of left hanging at the end. Like all these people spend all of this time obsessing over the Zodiac killer and We never found him. You know, he's gone. He's in the wind. And he's, you know, whether or not he's alive to this day, who knows? And a a part of me, it's just hard for me to watch a movie and know it's never going to, it's not going to end. And that's really hard for me to watch a movie and know that. But I will admit, this is the one movie on Fincher's filmography that really does instill actual fear inside of me. Because the way Fincher directs, and the way it's written, and the pacing in this movie is really, really excellent. And there are some scenes that are, to me, legitimately terrifying. And it's just the one film on this on this list that I find myself shuddering when watching. But you know, and I can admit, it's it's very uh, a very well directed film, and I can completely understand where you and many many people consider this to be one of Fincher's best works. It's just hard for me to go into a movie and really enjoy myself and then just kind of be let down at the end. Wow. Okay. Um,
0: I guess the first thing I'll say is, is the is the terrifying moment you're talking about the
1: basement scene? The basement scene is one of the most terrifying moments in, I don't want to say in cinema history because I don't have a list in front of me, but in, in Fincher's filmography, the basement scene is just sweaty palms and just hairs standing up at every moment. Yeah, yeah. The second he goes, you have a basement. Not many people in California have a basement.
0: Oh. That That's like, this is like, oh, this, this is not going to end well. And so I, I really do commend Fincher for really sort of toying with our emotions in, in that moment.
1: And Zodiac really feels, you know, we touched on Mindhunter very briefly, and I don't want to go too much into it, but Mindhunter really does feel like an extension of Zodiac. That It, it took everything that Zodiac does right, and Mindhunter kind of does that, and it just amps it up a little bit more. And I feel like if you're a big fan of Zodiac, you'll be a really big fan of Mindhunter.
0: Yeah, I want to push back a little bit, maybe the sort of unresolved ending. One thing that, you know, maybe I like about that is we're so used to everything, every sort of movie we watch that we consume always has some sort of a, a neat, nice little resolution at the end. We know who did it, why they did it, what happened to them, what happened to everyone afterwards, you know, for, for better or for worse. And sometimes a little ambiguity, you know, I, I think is good for us. I like that there are several misdirections where, you know, they're they're so all in on it. And and when they're finally like, we don't have enough to, con- to convince this guy, to convict this guy, to arrest this guy, whatever it is. I feel as an audience member you're just as dejected as the characters in this movie are. You you know you can see this obsession that it takes on the two main news reporters who are chasing after the story, you know, Jake Gyllenhaal and Robert Downey Jr. and Mark Ruffalo too. Like they really want it to be this one guy who's played by John Carroll Lynch spectacularly in my opinion. And and they just don't have enough information. And I think we as an audience, we're just so used to sort of being spoon fed. This is the answer. But in reality, in real life, we don't know it. And I really love they, they sort of toy with it a little bit where early on. Not early on, later in the movie, uh, Jake Gyllenhaal is having a fight with his wife, Chloe Sevigny, and she's like, what do you want? What do you need out of this? You're not a cop. You can't really do anything. He's like, I just want to be there. Look him in the eye and for him to look at me and know that I know it's him. And we actually get that as like the last scene when he goes to the hardware store and he sees John Carroll Lynch and he looks at him and John Carroll's like, yeah, can I help you? And he's just staring at him. And then you get this realization of... John Carroll Lynch knows what he knows and he knows what he knows. And just like this, one, this like, I know what you know, you know what I know sort of thing. And just like, there's this like really beautiful moment where, where Lynch's face just slowly turns from this like m- small smile on his face. to just, just the deep darkness that he has in his soul where it's like, I know it's him. I can't confirm it, but I know it's him. And then of course we get that last shot of um, Jimmy Simpson, in the airport playing uh, the older version of the guy who was attacked, who, who points him out is like, I'm pretty sure that's him.
1: You know, I completely understand where you're coming from because I know a lot of people mention that you're right. A lot of movies we get are, are nicely tied up at the end with a nice bow at the end. We're happy with the conclusion. And, and I i am all on board for a, uh, an ambiguous ending or for an ending that is open-ended. I just feel like we spend so much time obsessing over this killer. It's really hard for me to just leave and not know the answer but I, I completely understand where you're coming from. I do think that there is, in terms of psychological thrillers, because Fincher obviously has a lot and he's kind of known for them. I do think that there is one other movie that does it just a little bit better. And I'm sure we're going to be talking about that soon. So completely respect and, and understand your Zodiac opinions.
0: Well, you know what? You, you teased it right there. What's, uh, what's the one that's tied for fourth place?
1: Well, the tie for fourth place is 1995's Seven. There are seven deadly sins. Gluttony? You're going to come take a look at this? Greed? No one touches anything. Sloth, wrath, pride, lust, and envy. Seven. You can expect five more of these. Two detectives, a rookie and a veteran, hunt a serial killer who uses the seven deadly sins as his motives. Now, I actually wasn't referencing this particular movie, but... I will say Seven is what I think to be one of the introductory Fincher films. I think when people say, hey, have you seen any Fincher's movies? And someone says no. They say, oh, you should watch Fight Club or you should watch Seven. And that's usually the first two movies I feel like people recommend first. And Seven is kind of gone down in in cinema history as like just this iconic classic psychological thriller. It really is just like hits all the check marks it needs to hit. You know, it has a really interesting killer, a really interesting plot, uh, a lot of good twists and turns, and it's acted pretty well. Brad Pitt is, is really great. and I think Morgan Freeman's great. Uh, Gwyneth Paltrow, for her short moments, in it is great. And, and Kevin Spacey does a really good job as well. Um, Seven is really just the quintessential psychological thriller. I think it really just hits every every box you want to hit for a movie like this. Um, how did you feel first watching Seven for the first time? I'm curious.
0: It's that's definitely going back a while and so I'm trying to remember. but I just remember just being so blown away that someone was able to craft a story like this and make it both so obvious and also so removed, where you have no idea what's going on until the very end. And that end truly is a shock the first time you watch it, where I don't think, you know, I I think there's different reasons for people to not like it, mostly for people that are a little bit squeamish. This is Mm -hmm. not a movie for the faint of heart. There is some... I think he does a great job of implied horror in this movie where most of the, you know, there's a couple really shocking scenes of, of, you know, dead bodies and disfigurement and things like that. But it's more the scenes where he lets our imagination do all of the work, the heavy lifting that really sort of messes with you and keeps you thinking of it you know, days afterwards and waking up with dry sweats, wondering what's going on. Um, But yeah, just that ending, like, I, I, like, I know it's so cliche at this point, you know, what's in the box, that sort of (laughs) thing. Like, that's my Brad Pitt impression there for you. That's pretty good. Pretty good. (laughs) I'm not going to go full Brad Pitt there, but, uh, but yeah, like the first time you see that, it just blows you away the fact that he was able to to craft just this narrative that weaves itself together so tightly knit and has such a great payoff this is this is the sort of payoff that you wish every movie had like exactly. especially more of the the suspense thriller that sort of stuff mystery movie this is what you wanted that kind of a movie
1: yes i think you said it really really well you know we make fun of it now we joke about it you know the what's in the box line has gone down in history as one of the most iconic movie lines of all time and yeah we joke about it and we hear it in the streets and people say it as for fun on social media but if you really think about it going back to that moment if you're a first-time watcher it is a powerful moment i mean when brad Pitt's screaming what's in the box you and your mind are you just your mind's going at 100 miles per hour you can't help but think like is her head really in that box like did it really go there and it does um you know this movie weaves a really really fantastic mystery tale and it's just it just fires in all cylinders to where you leave the movie theater or leave your couch turn off the TV you're very satisfied with what you saw even if it ends with some tragedy at least it has some resolution to where you know you you watched a really really great film and I, I think seven just really achieves everything a, a psychological horror movie wants to achieve
0: mm-hmm. and and I think Fincher also kind of showcased this idea of bringing back a title sequence that actually means something we you know you look about you look back at maybe like someone like Alfred Hitchcock the way he would utilize Saul Bass to create his title sequences that really set the tone and sometimes gave away important plot information you know we've spent far too long with terrible James Bond opening sequences but some of them are actually really great and, and frankly lay the entire plot in a three minute sequence and here we, we learn so much about who John Doe is as a Person and everything that's that's messed up with his head. You know, this idea of like seeing the razor blades cutting off the fingertips. We don't know what that means. But throughout the movie, we learn, we understand why that was there. And it's just one of the most disturbing opening sequences that on its own plays out like its own little movie.
1: Yeah, I you know. I'm really happy you brought up Fincher's opening credits because all of his films have really, really interesting opening credits. Uh, sequences whether or not they do anything for the actual film or not seven in this particular movie really does like you said it is like its own mini movie giving you a you know a slight back history to john doe even though that's not you know we don't know as an audience that's what we're watching um i'm just glad you brought that up because i think of fincher's opening sequences very often you know fight club has an interesting one and even panic room has an interesting one they're all always pretty interesting and intricate
0: you sort of appreciate that a director takes the time to, to not just like hand over this section of the movie to whoever's, you know, doing the title sequence. And they're like, great, you insert my name and the cast name, and then uh, we'll call it a day that it actually really does connect narratively to his films.
1: Yes, exactly. You really appreciate that Fincher is taking care of not just the plot to the ending, but he cares about the opening sequence as well. and And that really makes you appreciate him as a director more.
0: I like how, as the movie goes on, even food starts to look a little gross and disgusting. <laughs>
1: no, you know, sure. th-
0: there's so much about this movie, especially, you know, in, in the gluttony killing where we're so turned off. And and that's really the point of it, is, like, with each of these murders, we're supposed to sympathize with John Doe and, and the reason why he's doing that. You're like, oh, yeah, he's so disgusting. Of course he ate himself to death. and Ugh. <laughs> But, like, as it goes on, you know, I think they, like, eat pizza or something later on, and they're in a diner, and, and just nothing looks appetizing. You just like lose sort of your will to enjoy life.
1: Oh yeah, 100%. Uh, Fincher does a really good job making the normal things in life. He makes it a really good job making it horrifying and then make you kind of uh, make it pretty grotesque. Mm -hmm.
0: All right, so let's move on to our number three film and that is Gone Girl from 2014.
1: Sammy got friends we can talk to? No, not really. You don't know if she has friends. You don't know what she does all day and you don't know your wife's blood type being a good guy so everybody can see him being a good guy well you really don't like him do you all i'm trying to do is be nice to the people who are volunteering to help find
0: it. With his wife's disappearance having become the focus of an intense media circus, a man sees the spotlight turned on him when it's suspected that he may not be innocent. Now I sort of mentioned this a little bit earlier on when we were talking about the game, this idea of maybe stunt casting. And this would basically be Fincher at his most stunt casting. We have Ben Affleck as this smarmy kind of charming guy who seems to be able to attract any woman he wants but at the same time he always has a bit of skeeviness under it which is something that Ben Affleck has really kind of uh, dogged through his whole career and then I won't really talk about Roseman Pike in that sense because she I feel like this is really her, her big coming out party. But then you've got Neil Patrick Harris, who uh, by this point had been playing Barney Stinson on How I Met Your Mother for, <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> for a very long time as this sort of woman's ladies man. And it's basically that ramped up. This is what you expect uh, Barney Stinson in a, in a David Fincher to sort of be like. Yeah. This very creepy man that you would not want any of your female friends or, or female relatives to ever be alone in a room with and then to sort of play against casting you have someone like tyler perry who's known for these really wholesome uh family christian movies where he plays medea and all his movies have this you know super positive message about loving everyone and you know family comes first and and all this sort of stuff and he's playing the absolute most scumbag of lawyers possible and i absolutely love it like i i can't stand tyler perry's movies on its own but in this i think he's so perfectly cast because he has that fake sincerity to him that he's able to bring to it that just works so well overall like i think the movie kind of loses steam at a a few points but i think the casting and the acting performances are all top notch for me
1: well did you steal my notes and read everything off here because i'm looking at my notes and you said everything that i wanted to say which is great because i just really want to echo that uh tyler perry absolutely fantastic yes known for the medea movies medea goes to jail medea has halloween number seven and they're yes they're a little bit ridiculous and over the top and casting this movie i think a lot of people will be like whoa tyler perry's in gone girl but he is really really good as the uh, scumbag lawyer um i love the casting of ben affleck in this movie like you said ben affleck has had a very polarizing career in hollywood you know he's had a lot of ups and a lot of downs and this is part of his like his rise back to Hollywood. You know, we're post Argo at this point, uh, post an Oscar win for Argo. And now we're seeing him star in Gone Girl. And like you said, playing a character that's seemingly very charming, but also kind of scummy at points. You know, he's cheating on his wife and he's really kind of not a great guy. And you know, Ben Affleck in real life has kind of been polarizing. People see him as yes, an attractive man, but who has also been kind of scummy. So a really, really just genius casting move by David Fincher, to be honest. Um, a lot of great stories about Ben Affleck and David Fincher. I, I don't know if you've ever read the story of uh, Fincher wanted Ben Affleck to wear a New York Yankees hat in the airport, but Affleck would refuse to wear it because he's a diehard Boston fan. He would not wear a Yankees hat. And so there was a whole big debacle. I think they like shut down for the day. They couldn't even film for that day because of it. And eventually, I think there were some concessions made. To where he wore a boston hat but it's just an interesting interesting choice by fincher uh, i think a genius move by him um what makes gone girl for me fincher's best psychological thriller is by far rosamund pike's performance i think that when you talk about zodiac and you talk about girl with the dragon tattoo and uh, even seven those movies are great and they're great because they have a great you know uh, ensemble cast um but I think Gone Girl is just driven by the power of Rosamund Pike. She is absolutely terrifying and fantastic at the exact same time. There are times where you hate her, and there are times where you love her. And I think that's what really makes this movie so great. One one minor correction. He he, Ben Affleck wears a Mets hat, not a, a red Sox hat. Oh, okay, Mets hat. That was a compromise. Okay, I knew there was a compromise. I didn't know if it was for Boston or for a Mets hat, but... That was the compromise, Mm -hmm. which I I feel in the movie makes sense because he travels to New York
0: to see Tyler Perry and he's needs a hat to cover up in the airport. And so he gets uh, the New York Mets one. And I think that works for me. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But yeah, Roseman Pike. So terrific. And, you know, I almost have to, to pose this question just as a little thought experiment. I wonder if this movie could be made today. This movie came out in 2014. I know it's written by a woman, Gillian Flynn, a, a very, you know, well-known writer who, who's gone on to write several other big things. But in this, you know, post-Me Too era, this is not a very flattering portrait of a woman And I know, you know, I I sort of talked about it earlier on that one of the issues I might have with Fincher's work as a whole is that it seems to be about specific people, not about, you know, people, humanity, this stuff as a whole. This is this movie is sort of the epitome of that where this is not about women. This is about a single woman who, you know based on whatever upbringing and terrible childhood she may have had as a very privileged white woman goes on to do some very terrible things, including trying to completely ruin a man's life. Can this movie, would it, would it be possible for this movie to be remade today and be received as positively as it was back in 2014? I'm I'm just curious of what your thoughts are.
1: You know, you make an excellent point and it's, it's a really, it's a loaded question because, you know, post me too there's a lot more focus on the presentation and how women are presented in media and hollywood and like you said fincher is obviously not making a uh, a, a just a broad statement about women in general it's just this particular person in their life and their upbringing and this situation honestly i don't think they they do make a movie like this be uh, post me too era and post you know 2018 2019 because i do think that It could be misconstrued and misinterpreted that this this, you know, this woman is uh, exacting her revenge on a man. And and I think that some people may interpret that as a negative thing when I don't think that's the intention at all. Uh, But because of this, you know, just the current climate, I just don't think they would want to risk it. And I don't think Fincher would out of respect. I don't think Fincher would want anybody to misinterpret that message
0: yeah like especially directed by by a man like maybe if this was a female director it could have been it would be received differently but like you know i hate twitter for this reason you know i haven't caught up with the mandalorian season two yet i do plan on it but i just remember seeing all the headlines from a recent episode with rosario dawson and, and you know the backlash who's received for that casting and like i'm just imagining what will be the the twitter shit storm if a movie like this were to come out today and i'm just like i just don't want to deal with it because. Sometimes people are just so quick to make judgments without, you know, looking at the bigger picture and I just wouldn't be able to deal with that nonsense.
1: Yeah, no, you know, Twitter is a uh, filled with a lot of great stuff, but there's filled with a lot of just not so great stuff as well. And the backlash to a announcement of a Fincher film about a woman who falsely, you know, accuses her husband of murdering her would probably not go over very well, unfortunately. Um, you know, and I think that again, I don't think it's ill intention on Fincher's part, nor would it be ill intention on people who are upset. I just don't think it would go over very well in a, in a post Me Too era.
0: Mm-hmm. But uh, I do have to say, this movie, watching it pacing I talked about in a few other movies being an issue you know this it's it's top notch the editing is is perfect the tension is always there everything is always just on that simmering point just below the boiling and and so I really have to respect that as far as crafting a movie in you know in the post production side of things it's it's nearly flawless
1: yes yeah I yeah I'm a big fan of Gone Girl and I really think that it takes a lot of the great things that we love about Zodiac and we love about Seven and we love about Girl with the Dragon Tattoo I feel like it just encompasses everything they have and just puts it into one movie. And that's why I'm just a huge fan of Gone Girl. All right, so what do we got number two? Well, we're, we're reaching the end here. So at number two, we have 1999's Fight Club. This is how I met Tyler Durden. Come on, hit me before I lose my nerve. You hit me in the ear. It was on the tip of everyone's tongue. Can I be next? We just gave it a name. Gentlemen. Welcome to Fight Club.
0: The first rule of Fight Club is you do not talk about Fight Club.
1: An insomniac office worker and a devil-may-care soap maker form an underground Fight Club that evolves into something much, much more. I mean, what is there to say about Fight Club that the world doesn't already know? It has become this cult classic sensation that has forever kind of changed the way we look at movies. You know, when it came out, kind of a box office bomb. It didn't really do that great. But now we look at this movie, I mean, I personally look at it very fondly. I think out of all of Fincher's movies, it is the most fun, but also the most, and this may sound a little bit corny, but it, it does have a lot of meaning. You know, the, the anti-consumerism messages in it are, are obviously very evident. Um, and I think that in 2020, it still resonates really, really well. But I'm curious to see I'm curious to know how you feel about Fight Club now versus when you watched it for the first time.
0: I'm not going to lie. This was the one movie I really wasn't looking forward to re-watching. I, I saved it until the end. I, I normally wait a few years between movies before I revisit it. I'm just not the type of person that wants to constantly revisit movies. I'm always like, there's something I haven't seen. I'd rather watch that instead. And so looking at it, I was like, I've seen this movie you know half a dozen times since college i know the plot inside and out i know all the stories behind it i'm really not looking forward to, to sitting through this and you know i was like i got time screw it I'm, I'm gonna do it just so i can have it fresh in my mind and not forget anything this movie still rocks like
1: yes yeah. there,
0: there's nothing new to say about this movie you know we we got through the moment of people finally discovering it because it was a box office bomb it took forever it was mostly you know college kids and and you know high school kids that were rediscovering it on video when after it came out and then it was the wow this movie is actually really anti-capitalist and then it was no this movie is pro-capitalist with a uh, too many bros in it and then it's like no it's anti-capitalist making fun of toxic masculinity and so it's like it, it like it seems like every year this movie gets reevaluated for one side of the coin or another. Except for it's more like a, a D and D twelve sided die or however many <laughs> sides there are, where it's like let's roll the dice and see what the new interpretation of this year is of Fight Club. And this movie is hilarious. I forgot how funny this movie is and just how well executed it is. And like. I look at it, I know the twist. I've seen this movie a bunch of times, but I still kind of can't get over how well this movie is shot and how right from the beginning we know what's going to happen, but it isn't until you rewatch it that you can truly appreciate the intricacy of it all.
1: You brought up a lot of great points and especially the twist part. I I know I also have seen it close to a dozen times or more. I forget that this movie even has a twist because I've seen it so many times. But you know I, I still talk to people who have never seen it and they watch it and they're like, whoa, I had no idea Tyler Durden and the narrator were the same person and they don't even realize the narrator doesn't have a name he's just the narrator. Um, yeah, this movie is just so good and, and you know the fact that every year that we get some new article coming out with a different interpretation of the movie, I feel like that's just a sign of how good this movie is when you have people, you know, still looking at it twenty plus years later, and and still looking at this and and finding new messages or uh, analyzing it in a different way, or or bring up different social commentary. That to me is is a sign of a, a good movie that's really packed a lot into it. Um, the editing is fantastic. Uh, the the acting, uh, Brad Pitt as a Tyler Durden will go down as one of the most iconic movie characters of all time. Uh, Edward Norton's fantastic in it. Uh, you know, even the the small supporting casts of Helena Bonham Carter and even Jared Leto's in this for a little bit. Everybody is is really just doing so so well as as their characters. Um, there's really not much I can say about Fight Club. You know, I just I enjoy it. I laugh at it, and I, I still ponder it very often. You know, in my, when I'm sh- shopping on an IKEA and I'm buying a chair, I think to myself, Do I really need this right now? Like, am I being too much like the narrator? Should I be? Ex- exploring life and, and and appreciating life more so i will admit fight club still sticks with me a lot
0: well you know if you buy the chair it's gonna be the last chair you ever buy so <laughs> you're gonna be that much more to being complete <laughs> Um, I think this time around, one thing I, I sort of really honed on is the approach to the character of Marla and the way her interactions with with Edward Norton's characters really sort of signify a lot of what's going on in this movie. We get this like really cold fractured relationship between them. And obviously going back when you realize that they're the same person, it just sort of plays out slightly differently on first view. You know, you can't help but think, you know, Marla is this psychotic bitch, but in reality, she's the same one of the two of them.
1: Oh yeah. The, the revelation that Marla is really just, you know, a normal person trying to get by in life and the character we've been following all around is really the the crazy person. It's a great revelation and, and and Marla's character is is really fascinating. Um I love her I just I love her character because it really is kind of the opposite of what Tyler Durden or what the narrator was and they 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 go together very well. Many people don't look at this movie as a romance or as a love story but in some sense it is a nice love story maybe not a nice love story but it is a love story between the narrator and marla and them fighting themselves at the very end in that very 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 iconic scene of them standing together holding hands as uh where's my mind drops by the pixies it's just it's kind of been cemented in this movie history as one of those really amazing scenes that might be like maybe top 10 all-time needle drops in a movie oh yes yeah that's i think top three for me at least that needle drop is is really fantastic
0: Mm -hmm. all right you know we we've been kind of dancing around it and doing our best to kind of really talk about it but uh we're here we're at the number one movie and you know if you know david fincher you you probably definitely know where it's at and i don't think i'll get a lot of hate mail for this i don't think so either number one we got the social network from 2010
1: this idea is potentially worth millions of
0: dollars millions He stole our website they're saying we stole the facebook i the know what it said so did we a million dollars isn't cool you know what's cool a billion dollars you're going to get left behind it's moving faster Wouldn't than any you. of us ever imagined get left behind. let's sue him in federal court i can't wait to stand over your shoulder and what you write as a check you guys were the inventors of facebook infected Facebook. Is there anything that you need to tell me? Your actions could have permanently destroyed everything I've been working on. We have been working on you. you like being a joke? Do you want to go back to that? Mark! Otherwise known as the Facebook movie. As a Harvard Facebook student, movie. Mark Zuckerberg creates the social networking site that would become known as Facebook. He is sued by the twins who claimed he stole their idea and by the co-founder who was later squeezed out of the business. Now, you know, I jokingly called it just the Facebook movie. But we have to look back to that time, to 2010, when this was announced and whatever it was, 2008, 2009, why is Mark, Why is David Fincher making a movie about Facebook? This was a site, you know, I, I joined probably 2006, 2007, quite popular. I think everyone has it by now or had it at some point. And it was just like, why do we need a movie about Facebook? This is the dumbest idea in the world. And and I know I was a little hesitant about it, but at that point I was like, you know what, I like Fincher, I'm gonna go out and see it. And I still get pushback of people who are like, I'm not gonna watch the movie about Facebook. This movie is not about Facebook. This is about friendship, betrayal, everything in between, but like I I still can't believe David Fincher pulled the biggest con on all of us and getting us to watch this movie.
1: There are a few films in in my opinion that are flawless. And I think the social network is as close to flawless as you can get. Uh, It's crazy to me to think that this movie didn't win Best Picture that year, but I'm sure you have an episode later in life about the biggest Oscar flubs. This might be one of them. But the social network, like you said, isn't about Facebook, right? It's about betrayal and friendship and our right to privacy, if we have any right to privacy. Um, You know, it's about one person's rise from almost nothing to really having power that is limitless to a sense. Um, it is, it is really just a fascinating movie and, and every aspect I think is done. Perfect. I think the acting is great. I think the cinematography is perfect. The soundtrack, which I know a lot of people talk about is really, really good. Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross uh, frequent um, composers with Fincher really created a, a soundtrack that is just complements the movie so well. Um, I really don't think there's anything I can say but this is a movie that if you haven't watched it, don't don't be afraid because it's a Facebook movie. This is a movie that's way more than that.
0: Yeah, you're, you're 100% right. I know you were praising the cast, the supporting cast, rather, of Curious Case of Benjamin Button, but in my opinion, this has a bit of a superior supporting cast, you know, between Rooney Mara and Andrew Garfield and Armie Hammer and Max Langella and um, so many, like, I, I can't even think of all their names right now. Joseph Mazzello. Justin um, Timberlake. Justin Timberlake, which, Justin oh Timberlake. my god, like, I, I quite like like Justin Timberlake as an actor I think he's quite good. I Oh, he is. Very good. I'm now a big fan of his music, but at the time I was like, "Uh, Justin Timberlake is not a good musician." I was I was very snooty at, at that oh, age. Yeah. Totally but understand. right from the get-go, I really enjoyed his screen presence. He just absolutely sells it. I would almost say this is another one of, you know, the stunt castings of of getting Justin Timberlake to play the the founder of Napster, which is hilarious. The
1: the casting in this movie Maybe not as expansive as Curious Case of Benjamin Button, but all the names you listed off are these are you know A-list actors here. I mean Army Hammer as the the Winklevoss twins. <laughs> you know we talked about CGI being really subtle. This is the perfect example. I was kind of referencing earlier where you know this is a, Fincher's use of CGI. I mean the, these aren't actually twins. Army Hammer doesn't have a twin, but they were able to digitally recreate Army Hammer's face onto another person and. Honestly, it's completely unnoticeable. I don't think I knew that fact until I did more research. And if you would have told me that that was digitally done, I would not have known that. I don't know about you, but I would not have known that. No, I I wouldn't have either. And I think what is
0: interesting is a lot of movies where they have one actor playing twins, is they usually will just film the scene twice, and then you know. Uh... I'm not using the correct terminology here, but basically uh duplicate him post production by by overlapping the the different frames. But here they, they use this terrific method of having another actor do the whole movie with Army Hammer and then Army Hammer was just later has his face CGI'd on top of him. Like insane.
1: Amazing. Amazing. I mean, we're talking about technology in two thousand ten. You know, Avatar had come out and it's just this is almost as fascinating to me as Avatar. It is that seamless and done so well. But um, there's really not much to say about this movie but besides the fact that it really is kind of life-changing. It really makes you look at this in a different way. Sure, the plot and the story may be dramatized for the sake of Hollywood. You know, a lot of the things that are in the movie probably didn't happen in real life. And I think Fincher and many people uh, note that. Now we we haven't even touched on the fact that this is an Aaron Sorkin written script. Uh those who don't know, Sorkin is probably one of the greatest screenwriters uh in the last, you know, twenty, thirty years, uh responsible for the West Wing and and the the newsroom on each uh, on HBO I believe it was on. Uh it's a tight script. It's done really, really well. Um I don't know how you feel about the script, but I, I'm a huge fan of it.
0: Oh, it's 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 perfect. It's it's just about as perfect as you can get. you know I, I've I've heard about how the fact that this script is already being studied and broken down in, in screenwriting classrooms since it came out, and it, and it makes absolute sense. The opening fight scene between Mark Zuckerberg and Erica Albright, played by Rooney Mara, is just pure perfection of how you write dialogue that, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. is going on 10 different directions. And the fact that the two of them were able to pull this off, I believe it was something like – Uh, almost 10 pages of dialogue in this very short scene is just absolutely insane that these two actors were able to do it. I think they spent several days shooting it and they both just absolutely nailed every emotion and beat that you can come across with. And Fincher just captures everything that you need to hear yeah well said well said so i think yeah it's it's no surprise the social network is on top i know i think if you sort of were to kind of poll most fincher fans they probably either say seven fight club or social network with probably social network being the one that you get the most votes for just yeah. because i think it's probably the most mainstream out of all of his
1: yep definitely agree with that as well
0: uh so it, it shouldn't be a shock to anyone that it's here we're going to take a short little break and when we come back we are going to give out our awards All right, so what we're going to do is we're going to give out our own awards. You know, we talked about how at the beginning that it's basically a combination of our rankings, but this doesn't really necessarily mean that you feel one way or I feel one way. It's just what our thoughts were together. So what we're going to do is give out a Best Picture, Best Actor, Best Actress, and then Best Supporting Actor and Best Supporting Actress. I know that sort of sounds like a lot, but it basically covers everything. We're going to get started with our Best Picture Picks. Uh, so Joe, let's uh, let's start things off with you. What was your best picture out of all of David Fincher's movies?
1: Out of all of David Fincher's films, the Oscar goes for Best Picture to Alien Three. Oh no, I'm sorry, I'm reading the wrong card here. It's not Alien Three. It's definitely going to go to The Social Network. You know, we spent a long time talking about it. I don't want to rehash everything we just said, but really, a a movie that has come to define a decade, and even now we're in 2020. Facebook is still in the news, you know, largely for negative things. And it's still very, very relevant to to our lifetime now, which is something I think is, is very rare in a film. So best picture for me goes to the social network.
0: You know, and I'm completely on the same page. You gave this movie a 10. I gave it a 9.8. I could have easily given this a 10 as well. This is, you know, as near perfect as a movie as you can come. And it is, like you said earlier, a damn shame that it did not win the actual best picture. And, you know, I often see online, you know, anytime a conversation pops up of what movie most deserved a best picture win that didn't. And this usually is always the top answer that I see.
1: Oh, yeah. I love The King's Speech. Don't get me wrong. I enjoy that movie, too, but The Social Network was definitely the movie that deserved it.
0: Almost ironically, you know, if you were to make a list of the biggest best picture snubs of all time, the other one would probably be something like Citizen Kane.
1: Uh, exactly, exactly. Perfect segue. Yeah, which, uh,
0: I, I don't know, as, as, as of this recording, I have not seen it yet. The movie just came out. Have you watched
1: it yet? I have not watched Mank yet. Um, I have... I'm currently watching Citizen Kane. I watched the first hour just before recording this, and I'm going to watch the last hour probably after this to watch and prepare for Mank, and then I'll probably watch Mank tomorrow. Interesting. Okay, so then
0: uh, maybe we will have to, to get you to send me uh, a little email or something that I'll read it uh, on there <laughs> for the next episode as, as we're looking at those two movies.
1: we Will do, we will do.
0: But, uh, but moving on, let's talk about Best Actor. Did you have any maybe runners-up you want to just like very quickly throw out there before you, you reveal your winner?
1: Yeah, Best Actors had a few runner-ups. I really considered Edward Norton for a second in Fight Club. And I really did consider Ben Affleck for Gone Girl. But when it came down to it, maybe this is my my hot take, but, but I like Best Actor for Brad Pitt in A Curious Case of Benjamin Button. I really do think that in a movie that's, well, he's the title character, he does a really good job from old man button to teenage young button. Um, really good job just encapsulating what life is like, you know, in the particular areas he's living through all the things he goes through, uh, you know, in the people he meets, I really enjoy his performance in that movie a lot. Um, so that's who I would pick for best actor.
0: Interesting. So for me, it basically kind of came down to a two horse race between Jesse Eisenberg in the social network and my actual winner, which was Jake Gyllenhaal for Zodiac. I really love, you know, the evolution of his character from this sort of cartoonist boy scout guy who just kind of is mildly intrigued by the Zodiac riddles to basically full-blown conspiracy theorist that's, you know, stalking Mark Ruffalo's character and it costs him his marriage as well and almost costs him his kids. Just such an interesting character arc, and I think Hall as now he is rightfully appreciated for all his work, but I think at the time was a little underappreciated by by the mainstream public. And, you know, that mostly is due to Nightcrawler really changing perception around him. But I think it started with Zodiac for me.
1: No, that's a really fair assessment. I think that before Zodiac, well, a lot of people saw him as the, the kid in Day After Tomorrow. And, uh, you know, no one really took him too seriously. And I think Zodiac, I agree with you, definitely changed our perception of him in that. All
0: right, so let's move on. Who do you have for
1: best actress? Oh, best actress for me, I think, is, is a given. Uh, I think Rosamund Pike for best actress is, is really the only choice here. Uh, we talked a little bit about her, we talked about Gone Girl, but I, I do think Gone Girl's success and its greatness hinges on Rosamund Pike's performance. She is both terrifying and frustrating at the exact same time. And when I look at a character and I'm really frustrated with that character, it's because she's performing so well, you know, the character isn't likable and that's the point. Hmm. Yeah. I, I, I think
0: that's, that's great. And that was,
1: you know, the runner up
0: for me, but for me, my pick ends up being Rooney Mara for the girl with the dragon tattoo.
1: Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah.
0: Okay. I, I know she doesn't really seem to have as much going on, but I think what I like most about it is the fact that, What we learn comes from these subtle, very micro emotions and revelations from her. And these little subtle things speak volumes about who she is as a person, what her beliefs are, where she is misunderstood and all this sort of stuff. I think Rooney Mara does a terrific job of sort of letting the audience in just enough to be able to see sort of the, the cracks in the veneer behind this woman who has a very, you know, tough brash exterior, but clearly has a lot going on. And, you know, part of the issue is the fact that we learn a lot of this late in the movie. You know, she clearly has feelings for Daniel Craig's character and that isn't just in a sexual manner, but actually does care for him. She recreates this old leather jacket of his and then she sees that he's back with his old girlfriend Robin Wright and she throws in a dumpster and you just feel the crushing pain that she must be feeling, even though she doesn't actually show it.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a really crushing moment, you know, for a character that is so hard, you know, she's like a, she has a, her defense is up the entire movie and she finally brings her walls down for that moment to, you know, a really sweet moment, recreating that jacket for Daniel Craig's character and then to see her get crushed was was pretty heartbreaking, but I appreciate the win for Unimor on your end.
0: All right. So who do you have for best supporting actor? And I, I, This one, I feel like it's a real treasure trove of you can pick someone who is almost a lead to people who just show up on screen for a few minutes.
1: There is a lot of people you could mention for this one. It came down to two people for me. It came down to Brad Pitt as Tyler Durden in Fight Club. But really, I think it goes to Andrew Garfield as Eduardo Saverin in The Social Network. I think that... If you look up Oscar snubs, I think Andrew Garfield definitely is on that list for his role as Eduardo. Um, You know, we all, we know this movie, we know Jesse Eisenberg is Mark Zuckerberg, but really the unsung hero of this movie is Andrew Garfield. He does such a good job playing the kind of uptight and wealthy Eduardo, you know, the foil to the Mark Zuckerberg in his sandals, you know, his fancy suits. Uh, He has the very iconic line of uh, the pretentious douchebag in the... The fuck you flip flops, which I you know absolutely love. Um, I think Andrew Garfield is just so so good in this movie, and that's why I have to give it to him.
0: That's a, that's a great pick. This one was tough. I I basically had a list of about ten to twelve names and decided to only consider one per movie, which is so difficult because you know if I look at Zodiac, it, it could have been Mark Ruffalo. But in the end, my finalist was Robert Downey Jr. If I look in uh, seven, it could have been uh, Morgan Freeman. But instead, I decided to say that Kevin Spacey was probably the best – supporting performer in that Mm -hmm. same thing in gone girl you know neil patrick harris but you know i'm going with tyler perry even charles dance in alien 3 i really (laughs) liked his performance of
1: that (laughs) that's fair that's fair
0: but in the end you know we're we're talking about our love for for the social network and i'm gonna keep it going and while i i love andrew garfield i think you're so on the money with that and i love justin timberlake i gotta give it to army hammer Wow,
1: the Winklevoss twins. Okay,
0: I I like I every time I hear the Winklevi, I just always like live, give a little giggle to myself. <laughs> so that's the only way I call him is the Winklevi. Okay, that's fair. Uh, but yeah, just just the amount of work that Army Hammer does. Of you know, he could be this typical jock, douchebag, rich people, which he totally is. These these assholes. But also they do have an intellect to them in the sensitive side in this fight between what is right and wrong. And, you know, they know that they're both that he's what, what do you say, like six four, two hundred 200 pounds and there's two of me or whatever that joke <laughs> yes, is. I love. love it. Yeah. Uh, but there's also so much more to that character and, and it has to do so much with Aaron Sorkin script. But I think. As time has gone on, we we know that Army Hammer is a terrific actor, and it shouldn't come as any surprise that he was able to pull off two roles so spectacularly.
1: Oh yeah, and hey, they gave us a hell of a rowing race, and that scene alone, I mean, who knew that David Fincher and the Winkle Winklevai could have given us a really intense... Rowing race. I mean, we talk about sports and movies. Yeah, basketball, football. Let's talk about how intense that rowing race was. Absolutely love that moment and love that scene.
0: Yeah, the in the Hall of the Mountain King that they use there and they repurpose and make this glitchy music scene works so fantastically with with building the tension for that.
1: Oh yeah, oh yeah.
0: All right, so we got one final award, and that is Best Supporting Actress. Who do you have?
1: You know, it was hard for me to pick one here. initially i wrote down rooney mara and i thought to myself well she's more of a lead actress i mean she is a lead actress in that movie but when it came down to it i really could only think of one person and that was helena bonham carter as marla singer i think that her role as the you know initial foil to edward norton's character she doesn't play by the rules and she's just so brass and so assertive she knows what she wants I feel like her character really kind of grounds the movie and I absolutely love her performance. That's why I picked Marla Singer and Helen, Helena Bonham Carter.
0: Very interesting. Yeah, this was this is another one where I kind of went back and forth a little bit about. Uh, I looked at Rooney Mara from the social network, despite the fact that she only has a few minutes of screen time. You know, the the very beginning scene, that 10-minute monologue basically back and forth that they have is is excellent. And then she shows up later on as is very angry woman who obviously and clearly holds a grudge to the way Mark treated her is terrific. But uh, I'm going to go off the board a little bit here and say Deborah Kara Unger from The Game is probably Whoa. my favorite. Wow. okay, okay. And the reasoning behind that is because I think she does a great job of really playing the character that she needs to. This is this is someone who we meet and it seems like it's a random encounter when when Michael Douglas meets her at the restaurant that he frequents and sort of treats her like crap. And then they end up sort of being bound together uh, Un unwillingly and then we sort of learned that oh she's involved in it but oh is she being forced to be involved with it or and then it's she's not and then she is and then they're tracking her and she can tell you what's going on and then she betrays him and then she reveals a whole bunch of stuff like there's just a lot of layers to this performance that uh, that I, I thought really worked well and she isn't someone i know i looked up her filmography she's kind of popped up and stuff here and there but never really kind of hit the highs that i think she did for this role
1: yeah no she is really great in that movie i think that second to michael douglas you know sean penn's in this movie but he's really not in it for that long but she does a really good job like you said we don't know if she's involved and there's times where we know she's involved but then how involved is she some really really great performances on her on her behalf so i think the ending it's so intense because of her performance and her ability to say you know hey you know, you have that type of gun, that's not possible. And then she freaks out. So we as an audience are freaking out. So, uh, you know, I res- totally respect that, uh, her win for best supporting actors on your side. Well, thank you very much. But, uh, there you have it. That wraps up the show. Uh, I
0: had a lot of fun with you having you on Joe. I think we had a, some, some great discussion, some, some friendly back and forth arguing there. And, and you're a, a terrific guest.
1: Thank you so much. No, I had a lot of fun. You know, I will never take it personally. If you don't love The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, totally understand. I've, I've spent the last 10 years uh, defending my position on The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, so I'm totally okay with that. But no, I, I really thank you so much for having me on the show. Um, I really appreciate it. I'll come by anytime to talk about Fincher.
0: Awesome. Well, you know what? Uh, you also host your own very excellent podcast. Where can people check it out? Follow you. W- what's the information you want to share? Are you working on anything right now that you want to promote?
1: Yeah, of course, of course. So yeah, like uh, like you said, I have my own podcast called House of Cinema. We can find uh, you can find us on Spotify and Apple and basically any other podcast website that you you go and find podcasts. Uh, currently. Uh, it's December. You know, we're a podcast. We don't specifically focus on a particular director or a movie, but we just kind of pick whatever movie that we feel like talking about. Or if you uh, are a follower on Instagram, you can check us out, out hasam- at House of Cinema. And uh, a lot of times we ask for audience suggestions, and we then do a movie based on the audience suggestion. So this December, Christmas time, obviously we're going to try to talk about some Christmas movies. I think we're going to be talking about Home Alone or elf or something like that, it's Christmas time. we got to celebrate somehow. So that's what we're currently working on.
0: Awesome. Even though I'm a bit of a Grinch myself, I'll, I'll still listen and enjoy them. <laughs> and, and your trivia at the end of it is always my favorite because I love seeing how well I can kind of stack up to to your Perfect. guests. Usually not very well. You're, you have a, a very deep well of knowledge uh, that definitely impresses me.
1: Uh, thanks i just watch a lot of movies and read a lot of uh imdb unfortunately so or fortunately but thank you again for having me on i really appreciate it it was absolutely
0: my pleasure and uh, make sure you check out the show notes where you'll be able to find links for uh a joe's show as well as for any charges stemming from the breach of security i believe i deserve some recognition from this board Uh, i'm sorry yes i don't understand which part You deserve recognition. So that concludes our ranking of the David Fincher movies. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Let me know what you think. Where would you put your favorite David Fincher movies? Which one's best? Which one's the worst? Send me an email. ContraZoomPod at gmail.com. And uh, we'll read it on the air. Uh, make sure you also tune in next week where it's going to be Make Remake Citizen Kane in Mank with the guys from Please Watch This. Uh, I was recently on their show. Make sure you go and check that out. We talked about Before Sunrise. It was a lot of fun, and I think you'll really enjoy it, too. There'll be a link for that in the show notes as well. Uh, make sure you follow the show on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Pod. Today's show is presented by Aesthetic Magazine. Thank you to Eric and Kevin Smale for the theme music and to Stephanie Pryor for the logo design. And also, if you can rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts, it will help us out a ton. Thank you for listening.